Our reading today is from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, skipping to verses 9 to 24. Hear the word of the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, skipping to verses 9 to 24. Hear now, O Israel, the decrees and laws I am about to teach you. Follow them so that you may live and may go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. Do not add what I command you and do not subtract from it, but keep the commands of the Lord, your God, that I give you. Verse 9. Only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them slip from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. Remember that day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, when he said to me, Assemble the people before me to hear my words, so that they may learn to revere me as long as they live in the land and may teach them to their children. You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while it blazed with fire to the very heavens with black clouds and deep darkness. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. He declared to you his covenant, the Ten Commandments, which were commanded you to follow, and then wrote them on the two stone tablets. And the Lord directed me at that time to teach you the decrees and laws you are to follow in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. You saw no form of any kind that day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape, whether formed like a man or a woman, or like any animal on earth, or any bird that flies in the air, or like the creature that moves along the ground, or any fish in the waters below. And when you look up to the sky and see the sun, the moon and the stars, or the heavenly array, do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshiping things the Lord your God has apportioned to all the nations under heaven. But as for you, the Lord took you and brought you out of the iron-smelting furnace, out of Egypt, to be the people of his inheritance as you, as you now are. The Lord was angry with me because of you, and he solemnly swore that I would not cross the Jordan and the good land the Lord your God is giving you as your inheritance. 
I will die in this land. I will not cross the Jordan, but you are about to cross over and take possession of that good land. Be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that he made with you. Do not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. This is the word of the Lord. Samuel, thank you very much indeed. Let's um, keep our Bibles open at Deuteronomy 4, and uh, I will lead us in a word of prayer. Our loving Father, we thank you that you do for us that which we are not able to do for ourselves in bringing us salvation and blessing after blessing. We pray today that in your kindness and power, you would give us one more blessing of understanding this part of your word, being convinced and comforted and living in the light of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, Sylvester Stallone is best known as the star of some rather violent films, at least three Rambo films, six Rocky films, uh, Judge Dredd, and many more. So it might surprise you to learn that Sylvester Stallone is a Christian. And uh, in a TV interview, he said this, quote, I was raised in a Christian home. Uh, I was taught the faith. I went as far as I could with it until I went out into the world and was presented with temptation. I lost my way and made a lot of bad choices. Uh, those bad choices left him empty, and uh, eventually Sylvester Stallone started to go to church again. And in the interview, he explains why. He says, the more I go to church, the more I turn myself over to believing in Jesus, listening to his word, and having him guide my hand, the stronger I become. And then he made this fascinating comment. The church is the gym of the soul. Uh, for a man who knows a great deal more about going to the gymnasium than I do, and I suspect you do, that's a rather interesting comment, isn't it? The church is the gym of the soul. It means we come to church for a workout. We come to church to develop spiritual muscle. And according to Sylvester Stallone, with the way we do that is by listening to God's word. Now, uh, this morning is the second in our five-part series, Why Church? And it's a series in which we're taking a journey through the whole Bible, pausing at several different places along the way. 
the purpose of the journey is to discover how God is going to put a broken world back together. To find out how God is going to make a world of harmony and peace from all of the pain and the division that we see all around us today. So as we make the journey, uh, we're focusing on this theme of scattering and gathering, scattering as a sign of God's judgment, gathering as a sign of God's grace. You may remember last week we visited the Tower of Babel, and we saw that when human beings collectively decide that God is not necessary, that they can get on perfectly well without him, God responds by scattering them. And uh, the result of that scattering is that our relationships with one another are at best difficult and at worst non-existent because we're scattered from God and we're scattered from one another. And that means there's no lasting peace in any personal relationship, any community, or any institution, because we are living in a seriously broken world. Now, if you were with us last week, you'll remember that we did qualify that slightly gloomy picture by saying that uh, God in his mercy does restrain evil so that this world is not actually hell on earth. So, you know, some marriages work, some families work, some nations are relatively peaceful, and God does that for us spiritually so that this world is not as bad as it might be. But the thing is, you and I want much, much more than that. And what all of us want is a complete cure for all of the brokenness and pain, which at times, well, threatens to overwhelm us, doesn't it? So in the series, I'm trying to persuade you of two things. Uh, the first is that the, the only lasting, stable cure for a broken world is the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, I know that might not be the cure that you were hoping for, and I understand that, because in our culture, the church is so often weak, uh, divided, ineffective. But you see, Scripture gives us a very different picture of the church as a beautiful, growing, multicultural community, united under the headship of Jesus. And that is the only thing, friends, that will outlast the world. And for that reason, the second thing I want to persuade you of is that committing yourself to a local church and building deep relationships with the people in it might turn out to be the most significant thing you do with your life. So this week we're going to focus on the, the beginning of this cure in the Old Testament. Uh, we're looking at the assembly of Israel at Mount Sinai, and that is kind of preparation, really, for next week, when we're going to be looking at the assembly of Jesus. But today it's the assembly of Israel at Sinai, and it'll help us, I think, to consider it under four headings. And the first is this, the promise 
of the assembly. The promise of the assembly. Now, our journey this morning is a bit odd uh, because it takes us from the Tower of Babel, uh, which, as you saw last week, is a picture of scattering. It's a picture of humanity separated from God. And we're going to travel to Babylon, which is right at the other end of the Old Testament story. Now, knowing that Babel means Babylon, you might be thinking to yourself, well, that's a pretty pointless journey because the destination is the same as the starting point. What on earth is the point of that? Well, let me explain. The catastrophe at Babel is recorded in Genesis 11. The very first thing that happens after that in Genesis 12 is that God gives a tremendous promise to Abraham. The promise is that through Abraham, God is going to remake our broken world. And uh, in the New Testament, uh, the Apostle Paul explains the way God's going to do it. God is going to do it through Abraham's seed, singular. So not Abraham's seeds, but his seed. And then immediately Paul goes on to explain that this singular seed does not just mean one man, the Lord Jesus. No, it means one man who will become the head of a single new humanity. And Paul says that if we belong to this one seed, Jesus Christ, then all of us together are Abraham's seed. It's you and me this morning. And we're heirs according to the promise. If you're taking notes, uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 29 is the go-to verse. Please look it up later. So Abraham's family is going to be a community of nations. Uh, there's going to be a gathering, uh, an assembly of people from all over the world into a single new humanity. That is the promise. And in the book of Genesis, we see the beginnings of that promise being worked out as Abraham's family starts to grow. But then, in the book of Exodus, we see that family multiply and become a huge number of people, over a million. But they're not really an assembly. They're more of an unruly rabble. And then we're told about that rabble being rescued from captivity in Egypt in the event we know as the Exodus. And then the first assembly outside the Garden of Eden is at Mount Sinai. Now that's our focus this morning. But in order to understand the significance of the assembly at Sinai, we need to keep in mind what actually happens after that. Now, I'm sure some of you know that eventually uh, the people enter the promised land and they have lots of assemblies, uh, lots of gatherings, especially in Jerusalem. Because in the Old Testament, Jerusalem is the place where God's people assemble. But very, very soon, the whole story begins to fall apart. Uh, after the death of Solomon, 
people of God are divided in two. Uh, The northern kingdom of Israel gets wiped off the map by Assyria. And eventually the southern kingdom also gets wiped off the map and taken in exile to Babylon. And so we find that at the end of the Old Testament, we've gone all the way back to where we were last week in Genesis chapter 11. And what we learn from that very brief overview is that the assembly of God in the Old Testament, the assembly of the people of God at Mount Sinai, is not precisely how God is going to remake a broken world. A better way to think of it is as a large-scale training exercise. Uh, What do I mean? Well, some of you might remember a few years ago that the mountains around Cape Town were ravaged by fire. Do you remember that? A number of houses were destroyed, a few people were killed. But it might have been so much worse. The reason it wasn't is because firefighters are very well trained. Apparently, firefighters are regularly given training exercises. Uh, These training exercises are very, very realistic. But they aren't the real thing. The value of these training exercises is that when the firefighters do actually have to deal with the real thing, well, they know what to do, and they do it extremely well. Now, that, I think, is a helpful way to think about the assembly of Israel in the Old Testament. It's a kind of training exercise for the real thing. And that's what's happening at Mount Sinai. So God promised Abraham that he would remake our broken world by establishing a worldwide assembly that would last forever. And that's the assembly of Jesus we're going to look at next Sunday morning. But what happens at Mount Sinai is a vital training to prepare us so we know what to do when we find ourselves in the assembly of Jesus. Now that brings us then to the second thing we need to learn this morning. We've looked at the promise of the assembly. We're now going to think about the pattern of the assembly. In Deuteronomy 4, which is our passage this morning, uh, what's happening is that Moses is preaching to Israel on the border of the promised land. An entire generation has died since that great day when Israel came to Mount Sinai. And here, Moses is reminding the new generation of what happened all those years before. Deuteronomy chapter 4 is important because it's the first time that God begins to reassemble a broken world. So we need to pay close attention. The key verse is verse 10. Uh, We'll pick it up at verse 9 so you get the context. Uh, Moses is talking to Israel, and in verse 9 he says... Only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them slip from your heart as long as you live. 
teach them to your children and to their children after them. Now, what does Moses want them not to forget? Verse 10. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, that's Sinai, when he said to me, now pay close attention, assemble the people before me to hear my words. Now there, friends, is the first feature of this assembly. Please will you notice God takes the initiative. And God takes the initiative because only God can remake a broken world. And God says to Moses, assemble the people before me. So notice, will you please, that the people of Israel did not say to one another, okay, let's have a meeting and let's invite God to join us. I say that because there is this idea in some Christian circles that we arrange the meeting and we invite God to be part of it. But you see, friends, that is getting things upside down. It was God's idea to bring them together. It was God who called the assembly because God is in the business of gathering. God loves to gather scattered people. And the assembly that day at Sinai became a pattern of the gatherings of the people of God in every age. Very interesting, actually, that three times in Deuteronomy, Moses refers to that day at Mount Sinai as the day of the assembly. It's important, I think, for us to get hold of this. Uh, keep a finger in chapter 4 and come with me to chapter 9 and verse 10. Deuteronomy chapter 9 Verse 10, Moses says, The Lord gave me two stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God. On them were all the commandments the Lord proclaimed to you on the mountain out of the fire on the day of the assembly. See? And that phrase is then repeated again, chapter 10, verse 4, and again, chapter 18, verse 16. Three times, therefore, Moses refers to that great day at Sinai as the day of the assembly. And it means that the people of God, Israel, were defined as the assembly of the Lord. It's really important to get this clear in our minds because it means, you see, they weren't a random collection of individuals who sometimes assembled. No, they were an assembly whose members were sometimes scattered. There's an enormous difference between those two things. So what are we as Christian people? Well, we are members of an assembly, even though sometimes we're not assembled. By contrast, we're not a, a collection of individuals who sometimes assemble when we feel like it. We are actually defined by assembly. And that matters, you see, because when you were converted, 
God wasn't simply giving you a kind of private, exclusive spiritual experience. No, God was calling you into the assembly of his people. And it means that when we gather as the local church, it is enormously significant. Because our gatherings aren't simply a means of encouraging us as individuals how to go out there and live the Christian life on our own. No, our, our gatherings are a sign. They are a foretaste of God remaking a broken world. So that's the pattern of the assembly. It's God's initiative as he fulfills his promise to Abraham. But then the third thing for us to consider this morning is the purpose of the assembly. Now this is actually the most important thing we're going to learn this morning. So just pinch yourself, check your partner's awake, uh, person sitting next to you. Come back with me again, please, to chapter 4, verse 10. Are we all there? Chapter 4, verse 10. God says to Moses, Assemble the people before me to hear my words. So the people were gathered to Mount Sinai by the word of God. It was his command that got them there in the first place. And the reason they were there were to listen to his words. That was the purpose of the assembly. So although they saw something, yes they did, what they saw was much less important than what they heard. So if you look back to verse 9, it, it is true. Moses says, don't forget the things your eyes have seen. But what did their eyes see? Verse 11, you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while it blazed with fire to the very heavens with black clouds and deep darkness. Now, I want you to imagine for just a moment that you're a journalist. Can you do that for me, please? And uh, you've been sent to report on what actually happened at Mount Sinai. And so that evening, on the evening of the day of the assembly, you arrive in the camp of Israel and you go up to the first Israelite you can find and you say to him, tell me, what did you see today? And he would reply, well, in one sense, I did see all kinds of wonderful things. I saw the mountain burning with fire. Uh, more than that, actually, now I think about it, I don't really know what I saw. But I can tell you what I heard. And what I heard was the most important thing. And what they heard is recorded in verses 12 and 13. Verse 12, then the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form. There was only a voice. Okay, that's significant. They didn't see a shape or a person. They only heard a voice. It was God's voice. What did God say? Verse 13, he declared to you his covenant the Ten Commandments, which he commanded you to follow and then wrote them 
on two stone tablets. So that's what they heard. And it's tremendously significant because the reason they were there was not to watch but to listen. They were there to hear the voice of God and to be shaped by that voice. They were to obey his voice. And we're going to see in a moment that as soon as they stopped obeying his voice, their assembly would be replaced by scattering. Now what that means, friends, is that when we assemble, we are gathering to hear the voice of God. Not my voice, God's voice. That is the purpose of the assembly. It's the first and it is the most important thing. We need to hear the voice of God and we need to be shaped by it. Specifically, Israel were to be shaped by the Ten Commandments. Now, today the Ten Commandments have rather gone out of fashion in the Western Church, and I guess if we were to stop the sermon now and test each other on the Ten Commandments, we might find that some of us would be doing a reset straight after the service. We won't do that, but the assembly of Israel was to be shaped by the Ten Commandments. Now, why? I hope you'll see if I run through them very quickly. See if you can pick up the golden thread. First, there's only one God. So in a broken world where people worship plenty of other gods, Israel were to love the one true God because that's the key to creating a society where people live together in harmony. Second, no idols. Now, we're living in a world where people shape God into what they want him to be. But Israel were to worship God as he revealed himself by his words and his deeds. Third, they were to honor the name of God. Now, we're living in a world that is uh, full of people trying to make a name for themselves, just like the builders at the Tower of Babel last week. But Israel was to be concerned with honoring the name and the reputation of God, because that is the antidote to the pride of Babel. Fourth, they were to observe the Sabbath. Now, we're living in an anxious and very driven world. That's Cape Town, isn't it? People work 24-7. They're terrified to take a day off in case they get sacked. But Israel were to be a people who trusted in the sufficiency of God. And they, they were to learn to rest and spend time together in the assembly. So not listening online, spending time together in the assembly. Fifth, they were to honor their parents. Uh, That's shorthand, actually, for honoring all authority structures that hold society together. Again, we're living in a society that rejects authority. But Israel was to honor Authority, because the authorities are established by God, Romans 13, so that society doesn't fall apart. Six, no murder. I mean, they were living then in a world that was ravaged by murder and anger and hatred. 
and a desire to harm other people, well, that's no different to our world, is it? But Israel, you see, were to love their neighbor as themselves. Seven, no adultery. Well, I mean, that's the hallmark of our society, isn't it? Tell me if you disagree with me afterwards. But you see, what does adultery mean? If a society is characterized by adultery, it means we're living in an unfaithful world. You can't trust anybody. And in that world, Israel were to value and honor faithfulness in the covenant of marriage. Eight, no stealing. Now, our world is characterized by grab, grab, grab for me, 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 isn't it? But Israel were to be a people who learned to work hard so they could give, give, give. Because they know the God who gives us all things richly to enjoy. Nine, no false witness. In a world where people love to lie for our benefit and the harm of other people, lying and twisting things in order to show me in a good light and other people in a bad light, Israel were to learn to love the truth because they know the God who is faithful and true. Ten, no covetousness. Well, in our world, people are obsessed, they're self-obsessed, and they're greedy and anxious for more stuff. But Israel were to learn to trust the God who has said to all his people in every age, I will never leave you or forsake you. Now, friends, when you think about the Ten Commandments like that, can you see that their purpose is to shape a people who will live in harmony with God, be at peace with one another, and govern God's world properly. So the assembly of Israel would quite literally be held together by the word of God. So, friends, don't let anybody tell you that our emphasis here at St. Barnabas on the preaching and teaching of God's word is just one possible way of doing church. You know, there are plenty of other, other ways you could do church. They're all equally valid. Some of them emphasize the word of God. Some of them don't. If anybody tells you that, don't believe it because it's not true. Because if the people of God are not gathered together to hear his words, what is the alternative? Well, let's have a look. Moses warns them quite clearly. And it's definitely a warning that our generation needs to hear. Verse 15, have a look at it. <coughs> Moses says to Israel that when they were at Mount Sinai, you saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, Sinai, out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol. In other words, be very careful not to make God in your own image. You know, a God who isn't going to be bothered by your disobedience. Because that's the definition of idolatry. And then in verse 25, verse 25, 
Moses says, if you do give in to this, if in later generations you become idolaters, if uh, your assemblies are shaped by gods that you quite like the look of, well, verse 26, I call heaven and earth against you this day that you will quickly perish from the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess. You will not live long there, but will certainly be destroyed. Notice the next sentence. The Lord will, what? Somebody say it. Scatter you among the peoples. So friends, can you see that our Christian gatherings are either going to be shaped by the word that God speaks to us from outside ourselves, from Scripture, or they will inevitably become idolatrous gatherings in which we shape God into the way we want him to be. Frightening, friends, how easily a Christian assembly can become an idolatrous assembly while still calling itself Christian. Uh, C.S. Lewis has got a brilliant illustration to help us understand this. Um, after his, his wife died of cancer, he wrote a book about his experience. It's called A Grief Observed. And in it, he makes this fascinating observation. He says that after his wife died, what made him really angry was when people came up to him and said, well, never mind, she will live forever in your memory. And Lewis says that made him angry because the one thing his wife would never do in his memory, of course, was live. Uh, he would remember her with great fondness. Yes he, yes, he would. But she wouldn't live. And the point that he goes on to make, which I think is so brilliant, is that when she was alive, she was other than him. You know, that means... He did not know whether she was going to smile or frown or what she was going to say. She had an existence that was independent of him. But once she was dead, that was no longer true. Because in his memory, he could make her smile or frown or do anything he wanted because he was in complete control. Now that is a brilliant illustration of idolatry. You see, if you and I think for one moment that we've got God sorted and we come to church expecting to be told stuff about God that we already know and to have our disobedient lifestyles unchallenged in any way, we've become idolaters. So it's of enormous importance that we learn to listen to God's voice because it's only by speaking that God assembles his people and prepares us for the life of the world to come. That is the purpose of the assembly. There isn't another one. But there's one last thing we need to grasp before I close about the assembly of Israel, and I've called this the problem of the assembly. Now, this is really just a, a preview or an advertisement for what's coming down the road next Sunday morning. It's very brief. 
But I just want to emphasize that there is one big difference between the assembly at Sinai and the assembly of Jesus. Because when Israel were summoned, summoned to assemble around the mountain to hear the voice of God, they had to keep their distance. You can read about that later in Exodus 19. They weren't allowed to touch the mountain. In fact, even if one of their animals wandered onto the mountain, they had to kill it, and they had to kill it by stoning because they weren't even allowed to touch the animal. So the assembly at Sinai was an assembly in which the people of God had to keep their distance. In other words, there was no intimate fellowship with God. The access to God that Israel had at Sinai was access at a distance because Israel was still sinners and if they came too close, they would be burned up because, as the passage says, God is a consuming fire. So, just think about that during the week. It's going to be no small matter for God to give the assembly of his people the intimacy and the access that is going to be such a crucial part of bringing healing and wholeness to a broken world. That's what God's got to do. So next week, we're going to move from the assembly at Sinai to the assembly of Jesus. And we're going to focus especially on the local church. But this morning, can we please take away the vital truth that God gathers the world by speaking And therefore, the teaching and the preaching of the word of God is of the greatest importance in healing and remaking a broken world. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you that you said to Moses... Assemble the people before me to hear my words. We praise you for the great anticipation this gives us for the assembly of Jesus. We praise you for your determination and promise to reassemble a broken world. And we ask that in all of our meetings that we might be attentive to your voice and that we would hear you speaking in ways that don't simply reflect our own desires and imaginations. But we ask rather that you would humble us under your mighty word. And we ask it for Christ our Saviour's sake. Amen.